The curbside sedation medicine is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only. The topics discussed should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash life memorial hospital. In short, we are responsible if you screw up. Please do your homework and let us know if you got something wrong. Hey guys, it's so good to see you. I'm so excited to be doing this episode for you in honor of National Addiction Treatment Week. It's October now. <laughs> um, anybody have any exciting plans for October or Halloween? Uh, do I have any exciting plans for Halloween? I'm going to probably dress up my kids into costumes that they don't choose. But uh, one of my kids has very long hair, so I think I'm going to dress him as Elvis. But other than that, I don't know. That's the perfect fit. I like to, I have one of those dinosaurs that blows up and has an individual, like the fan, and I march in a parade with it and play my clarinet. So I'm a raptor, like a person playing a, a clarinet on a raptor. So that's my if, Halloween tradition. If there was any statement that fit your personality more than that, that <laughs> I do not know it. <laughs> I do not have Halloween plans, but. I've, I've dressed up as Harry Potter for the past three years because it was the only yeah, costume that I had. And, and then I lost my wand last year. So I got to get creative in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> Just go out and grab a stick, I think, from the yard. It'll be okay. Same glasses, stick. Yeah, there you go. Sean, can you just deliver Kenny a stick? And just yeah. on his desk I right do. <laughs> I have trees in my yard, so I can probably do that. Um, and on that note, you know, I know we are so excited to be here today. This is um, a little bit of a unique episode, so it is separate from our season two, but we were really excited. We wanted to produce some content in honor of National Addiction Treatment Week. So on that note, welcome back to the Curbsiders Addiction Medicine, which is our series on substance use disorders. I'm Dr. Carolyn Chan, and I'm joined by all of my co-hosts today, Dr. Sean Cohen, Dr. Kenny Morford, and Dr. Natalie Stahl. And today, we have just a great episode for you all. We are really excited to discuss the treatment of opioid use disorder in the era of high-potency synthetic opioids, also abbreviated as HPSOs, and uh, more commonly referred to as like fentanyl and fentanyl analogs with Dr. Melissa Weimer. But before we get too much into our topic today, uh, Kenny, can you remind the audience what we do on this show? Happy to, Carolyn. We are the addiction medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to demystify common addiction medicine topics, reduce stigma, and inspire listeners to be fierce advocates for all individuals who use substances. Um, a reminder that most of our episodes are available for free CME credit through VCU Health CE for all health professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. And we also want to remind you that by listening to these episodes and completing the CME credit for the episode... Um, they can be used to count towards the new DEA eight-hour training requirement on substance use disorders education. Um, so check it out. Special thanks to the American Society of Addiction Medicine, also known as ASAM, who have partnered with us to support this Curbsiders Addiction Medicine episode in honor of National Addiction Treatment Week. National Addiction Treatment Week raises awareness that addiction is a treatable chronic, condition, chronic disease and inspires the medical community to combat stigma and treat addiction to save lives. You can learn more about it at treataddictionsavelives.org and participate by using hashtag Treatment Week on social media. ASAM's mission is to become the physician-led professional community for those who prevent, treat, and promote remission and recovery from the disease of addiction, and to provide resources for continuing innovation, advancement, and impl implementation of addiction science and care. Learn more at asam.org. 
We have an absolutely fantastic conversation with our guest and a lot of our mentors and friends, Dr. Melissa Weimer, who is a clinician educator, board certified in internal medicine and addiction med, and the medical director of the Yale Addiction Medicine Consult Service. She works tirelessly to improve treatment for patients with substance use disorders, particularly in the hospital setting. And she teaches us how to safely initiate treatments such as methadone and buprenorphine for people who use high-potency synthetic opioids like fentanyl and fentanyl analogs. You won't learn fentanyl. You'll learn a fentanyl lot. (laughs) 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 Melissa, we are so excited to have you back on. You have been a wonderful guest in the past, and I just want to take a minute to make sure that's folks who aren't familiar with you, um, get to know you a little bit better. So do you mind giving us a one-liner about yourself? Sure. Thank you for having me again. Um, It's so awesome to see all of you, my favorite people. Um, So I am a 44 midlife year old doctor, um, (laughs) mom of two kiddos, uh, partner um, to a wonderful husband, I am fiercely passionate about improving treatment of individuals with substance use disorders, and I'm also fiercely passionate about Tabata workouts. And if you don't know what that is, Google it. Oh, yeah. Tabata's hard. (laughs) I did a Tabata ride for the first time in like six months today because I knew you were the guest. (laughs) That's good. I am so honored. (laughs) I almost died, but I'm here and I'm ready to go. That's good. I did a Tabata workout today, too, and I feel awesome. You're so much better than me. (laughs) I don't know what this is, and I'm already intimidated just by the fact that Ken, you said it it was a tough experience. Kenny and Melissa do it, so it must be difficult, right? Uh, And can you tell us about uh, the reason we're here and doing this episode, National Addiction Treatment Week? Yes, National Addiction Treatment Week this year is October 16th through 20th, and it is a very important initiative to promote addiction as a disease that has evidence-based treatments, which are available, and that recovery is possible. So there is hope and treatment available, and we also need more clinicians who are able to screen, address, and treat um, substance use and substance use disorders. So along those lines, how can individuals become board certified in addiction medicine? So there are actually a couple different ways to do that. Up until um, through 2025, there is something called the practice pathway. And this is for clinicians who already treat a lot of um, people who have substance use disorder. And so if you have sufficient experience doing that clinically, um, up until 2025, you are able to apply to the American Board of Preventive Medicine um, through something called the Practice Pathway. After 2025, the Practice Pathway will actually close, and the only way to become board certified would be through an Addiction Medicine Fellowship, of which there are nearly 100, I believe, in the country. My institution has a wonderful uh, program of which all of these folks have gone through (laughs) on this podcast. Um, And of course, if you're interested and you really want to become a specialist of addiction, I would highly encourage you to consider a fellowship. It's a one-year 
um, training program, and many of them are are wonderful. Second, that fellowship was awesome. I mean, I got to do it with Carolyn and Natalie, and Kenny was Kenny and Melissa were two of the attendings and advisors for us. So, get to it, y'all. Agree. It was a good time. <laughs> Loved it so much. Left, you know, the workplace to go back and do a fellowship. So. <laughs> and on that note, you know, since we are really focusing on National Addiction Treatment Week, we're really excited to bring a case to you guys today. Uh, so, Sean, do you mind? Starting with a case from Cashlack Memorial. Oh, yeah. Love to. So uh, Miss G is a 25-year-old woman with severe opioid use disorder who's currently admitted to the hospital with an epidural abscess related to injection use. Uh, Prior to admission, she'd been injecting fentanyl somewhere around 20 times per day. And she's previously been on both methadone and buprenorphine, but it's not on any medication treatment at this time. Uh, She's hospitalized and receiving IV antibiotics and scheduled to undergo surgical washout of the abscess. She's having a ton of pain and also a lot of opiate withdrawal, and she's currently receiving uh, a little color commentary, but a very low dose of oxycodone, five milligrams every three hours as needed, and reports that it is ineffective. Um, She's counseled and discussed uh, the three meds for opioid use disorder and, and again, has experience with methadone and bup. And just as a side note and a quick plug, if you want kind of the basics on methadone, episode one from our addiction medicine miniseries was methadone for OUD with Dr. Ruth Pody. And episode seven is the basics of bup is do the OBOT on office-based bup with Christy Soren. And so... Uh, Let's say Miss G elects to start methadone. She gets 30 milligrams, which is kind of the standard starting dose. I know particularly in the outpatient setting, but she continues to have a lot of opioid withdrawal and be in a ton of pain and says that previously she was found that a dose of 120 milligrams of methadone was effective and that she just needs more right now. So how do you approach methadone dosing in someone who kind of regularly uses injection fentanyl and is in acute pain kind of at the same time? Well, I'm glad to hear that she's interested in starting methadone. That's uh, first step number one, which is great. You know, generally we do give up to a total of 40 milligrams of methadone on the first day of treatment. Um, Folks who have had a lot of exposure to fentanyl, which we will discuss, um, and I'll use the term high potency synthetic opioids, because although most of of the... um, novel components in our drug supply are fentanyl and fentanyl analogs. It's not all just fentanyl. So collectively, I'm going to refer to it as high potency synthetic opioids or HPSO. Um, So high potency synthetic opioids, folks who have a lot of exposure to that will have very, very high tolerance and very high needs for treatment of opiate withdrawal. So what I generally counsel my patients about is we can start you on methadone. We can give you, you know, 40 milligrams on day one. And then we can give you additional short acting opioids on top of that for both pain and as well as opiate withdrawal treatment. Now, could you give more than 40 milligrams on the first day? Yes, you could, but unless you are highly experienced with methadone and methadone dosing, I would probably leave that to your addiction medicine specialist to to manage and monitor um, because you can run into some issues. If you give more than that, you can have dose stacking, uh, which you don't necessarily see right away. You can actually see a delayed dose stacking three to five days later. So you just want to be aware of that. You want to have an awareness and a um, some knowledge of the pharma 
pharmacokinetics of methadone, which are very specific to methadone, and you really need to respect and make sure that you're not, you know, giving too much of the medicine. So in, in this case with Ms. G, so she's gotten the 30 milligrams of methadone, she's still having pain, she's still having withdrawal symptoms, it sounds like you would kind of go up to at least 40 milligrams on the first day, so probably give her another 10 milligrams. What would you do with her oxycodone? So this patient's currently receiving five milligrams of oxycodone, um, what, every three hours, perhaps. Certainly that's not going to be sufficient for the level of tolerance she has. So, you know, this is an area where, again, without specialty experience, you may not feel comfortable utilizing these doses, but typically someone such as her, we're generally having to use doses of oxycodone up to somewhere between 15 to 25 milligrams every three hours as needed. Certainly we're holding for sedation. Um, so once she does stabilize it, and she will, she'll start to kind of stabilize out once she gets a few doses of that and the methadone. Um, you do want to be really, really careful that you're holding for sedation. I always write that in the, the order um, that I'm writing in the hospital. But that's going to help with pain. It's going to help with stabilization of her opiate withdrawal. And you can pair that with clonidine and Adorax or Vistral um, and, you know, other supportive agents such as Trazodone to help with sleep, melatonin to help with sleep. I typically don't use a lot of benzos um, just because of the combined um, respiratory depression effects. But certainly if she's very, very anxious, you can and there's nothing you know, there's no reason that you can't in a hospital setting. Yeah, I imagine particularly if she needs an MRI, that could be an area, you know, where I don't think we should be afraid to use benzodiazepines if she needs that to help with Mm -hmm. any nervousness she has around just being in a small space um, or as well as it's uncomfortable, you know, to lay on your back if you have an epidural abscess for a long period of time. In general, you know, the first, I would say, 72 to 96 hours of hospitalization for folks who've had a lot of exposure to high potency synthetic opioids can be quite, quite rocky. And so you really want to be as as supportive as possible. And a lot can be said for just talking with them, hearing them out, providing support, letting them know that you're on their side, you want to help them, you want to help them be comfortable, you believe them, you believe they have a high tolerance, you understand what that means, you understand how to treat that. And I sometimes find that just providing that level of confidence and support can go a very long way. And on that note, what common pitfalls do you see for individuals who are using methadone to treat opioid use disorder in the hospital? I think initially many folks are rightfully just not very experienced with using methadone or they've been told that they can't use methadone. It's illegal or there's some other reason that they can't use it. Um, They might think only about QTC prolongation and be too worried about that. Um, So I guess the first pitfall I see is you don't give it to people, number one. (laughs) Um, And then if you do give it to them, you give a dose that's maybe too low Um, So I see two things. I see low doses of methadone in the 10 milligram range, or I see crazy high doses. And um, both of those make me nervous uh, because (laughs) if it's too low, it's obviously not helping the patient. 
And then if it's too high, I get really, really, really worried about dose stacking. So, you know, this patient may say, I have been taking 120 milligrams of methadone on the, you know, illicitly, like I, like, that's my dose. So I have seen folks sometimes say, okay, and give 120 milligrams off the bat. Uh, which would not be recommended in this situation because we don't really know what she's been taking um, on the street. So again, you need to know a bit about the medicine. You need to respect the pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics. If you don't know a lot about it, um, make sure that you're talking to someone who has experience utilizing it. If you don't have an addiction specialist in your hospital, um, it would be great to try to partner with the medical director of your local opioid treatment program. I hope that you have one. Um, if you don't have one, there are resources through places such as PCSS where you can reach out for um, support and mentorship. So lots of different ways to find out how to help your patients. So along the lines of wanting to make sure that we're safe and we're knowing what's allowed, um, how quickly can you start and increase methadone in the hospital? What do you do the next day? Is there a maximum dose in general? Is there a, a point at which you stop titrating and wait? What do you do next? So, you know, general day one is somewhere between 40. Um, so a general titration schedule would be day one, 40, day two, 50 day three, 60. Once you get to 60, you wait three to five days before going up on the dose. Now remember, while you're doing this titration schedule, you are providing other supportive medications, you're giving short-acting opioids, and always remember, and I know I taught all of the prior fellows on this call this, um, you can always give more, you can't give less. And I have had people end up in the ICU on drips. Don't do that. That's that's, uh, you know, really harmful to your patient. So you can always give more, you can't give less. And even if you don't see sedation or, you know, other types of issues initially, you can see, as I said before, that dose stacking, and sometimes you don't see it until three to five days later. Um, so just important to be aware that that long half-life of methadone really can stack if you go up too quickly. So Melissa, can you clarify, what does that mean in terms of the order? Do you put in 40 at once? Do you put a 10 PRN order in? And if so, what is the indication? What does your order look like as you're titrating up? Sure. So certainly, um, usually what I do is I get the 30 milligrams at once and then a 10 milligram PRN later. Um, that later could be after one hour, after two hours, I mean, you really determine what you want to do. If you want to um, make it after four hours because the peak occurs at four hours, that's fine. I don't make that 10 specific to a cow's. Um, really, I let the patient kind of drive the, um, the use of that as needed. So I'll generally give the 30 milligrams, let's say 10 milligrams after, after four hours as needed for opioid withdrawal. Then the next day I would give, so day two, I would give 40 milligrams with another 10 milligrams as needed after four hours for ongoing craving withdrawal. Day three would be 50 milligrams, then another 10 milligrams after four hours as needed for ongoing craving withdrawal. 
And I think just to like go back and summarize a little bit, because we've gone through a lot of stuff, it sounds like for someone who's using high potency synthetic opioids regularly, and I think particularly IV, and that's kind of what we call fentanyl is like, this is like the fancy broader term for fentanyls, is if they're interested in methadone, start them on 30 to 40, you can go up by 10 a day until you get to 60, as long as you're monitoring them closely. Uh, and then like use short acting opioids kind of liberally, I would say, in terms of like making sure you're controlling withdrawal and controlling pain, because uncontrolled withdrawal and pain are the reasons people often leave the hospital prematurely, especially when people, this lady has an epidural abscess. So while kind of slowly up titrating the methadone, it's okay to go a little bit more on the, on the oxycodone or hydromorphone or whatever works for this person. And it's worth emphasizing, even though we haven't had a chance to mention it yet, that methadone and buprenorphine are incredibly effective medications, even in the era of high potency synthetic opioids and kind of fentanyls. And so methadone and buprenorphine reduce mortality by as much as 50%, as well as have kind of a host of other benefits, including reducing premature discharges. And so these are medications that are more effective than probably most of the medications we use in the hospital. And so it's critically important that we offer them and start them for all people with opiate use disorder that are interested. Too. Definitely. Um, and you will see, you will see folks start to, like I said, level out and, you know, the nurses can, will say, you know, she appeared sedated at 8 p.m. So I held the oxycodone until the morning. And so, you know, you will start to see them leveling out. And once you do, then you can pull back on the oxycodone because as you're going up on the methadone, you would anticipate the patient's not going to need as much of the short acting opioid. So you do want to pull that back. You don't want to keep that going up and up um, as you're increasing the methadone. When you're doing rapid methadone initiations, I guess that's, that's what we're going to call this. Is, is there any extra monitoring you typically do? Like, do they need to be in a special place in the hospital? Can they be on the general medical floor? They can absolutely be on the general medical floor. Um, I think if you're concerned about the dose, you can always assess the dose at four hours after giving the dose. Certainly, if you're giving very, very high doses or, or you are concerned, you could put them on continuous pulse oximetry or something like that, but that's generally not, not needed. We have had folks who say are starting rifampin, um, which is a powerful inducer of methadone, and we've had to go up pretty quickly on their methadone be because it basically eats up the methadone. So we have had to increase doses pretty rapidly. Again, something that you'd want to partner with a specialist on doing. Um, those folks I do monitor a little more closely because we're going up so quickly. And you, of course, want to check on their QTC prolongation, particularly if they've had any sort of cardiac um, procedure, you want to make sure you're checking QTC. But it would be a rare situation that we'd need somebody on telemetry to do that, um, that we do sometimes do that if, if QTC is highly prolonged. Great. And our patient does well. So the patient is discharged to a skilled nursing facility to finish their IV antibiotics while continuing methadone. She does complete treatment and she actually comes to your primary care clinic three months later for a follow-up, which is great. She trusts you. Yay. She has built rapport with her. She's like, I want to see you again. Um, unfortunately, there were some challenges with methadone, which is unfortunately the reality of the way we prescribe the medicine and the 
the country at this time. So she had to stop methadone because she had a lack of transportation to the clinic and started to use fentanyl again. So she wants to start buprenorphine just because the reality is she can't make it to methadone clinic, which is a partial opioid agonist. And she, in the past, she had been treated again with buprenorphine with about 24 milligrams and had decreased her use on that dose. She didn't completely stop use. And she had tried to restart buprenorphine on her own about a week ago, but when she took a four milligram film a few days ago, it made her really sick. So it sounds like this patient may may be experiencing buprenorphine precipitated withdrawal. Uh, Can you tell us what that is and how fentanyl fentanyl use in particular or HPSOs have raised some concerns around um, this buprenorphine precipitated withdrawal? So a lot more people are reporting that they're having severe withdrawal symptoms after initiating buprenorphine when they've been exposed to high-potency synthetic opioids. And, you know, some of this is not totally known, but but what we know of these high-potency synthetic opioids, such as non-prescribed fentanyl, this is not uh, hospital fentanyl, this is, you know, illicitly manufactured fentanyl. Um, So these fentanyl and fentanyl analogs are highly lipophilic. They are hanging out in people's fat stores. They also rapidly um, cross the blood-brain barrier. Even though their action is very short action, they're kind of hanging out in the body, if you will, or their half-life is very long. So you'll have folks who are needing to use many, many times throughout the day. However, they're finding that it takes a really, really long time for them to really have severe withdrawal symptoms. And so we'll see people who come in and they say they're using five or or six times a day. They come in, they're very, very anxious. They don't feel well. They would otherwise be using again. And then when we watch them, some of them don't start to mount these objective signs of withdrawal for 48 to 72 hours. Honestly, it's something that is new (laughs) in the last three three to five years, I would say, we never saw this, you know, prior to then. So it's hanging out in the body, it's hanging out in the fat stores, though it has a very short action. And so essentially, people don't feel well, they feel like they should be able to take buprenorphine. And so they do. But because they're taking generally low doses of buprenorphine, and they haven't had enough time away from the fentanyl, they are having worsening withdrawal symptoms instead of improvement, which is what was happening in the past in the sort of olden days of buprenorphine initiation. But it is important to differentiate what is opioid withdrawal from what is precipitated opioid withdrawal. And I think that's where there's actually a fair amount of confusion among many people right now um, because precipitated opioid withdrawal is pretty unmistakable. Um, And I've seen it a handful of times at this point, more times than I would like. It's terrible. I don't ever want a patient to experience it, but it does happen sometimes. But precipitated opioid withdrawal is really this rapid onset, usually within 10 to 15 minutes after taking buprenorphine, of opioid withdrawal syndrome, which really has to have objective signs of opiate withdrawal. So this is where you're getting dilated pupils, goose flesh, extreme restlessness. I mean, extreme, like a person cannot sit still. Um, Usually they're having diarrhea or they're vomiting. So there's really pronounced 
objective signs of withdrawal. And it's after the initial administration of buprenorphine. And usually it means that you're having greater than five point elevation on the clinical opioid withdrawal scale or the CAL scale. What precipitated opioid withdrawal is not, is not anxiety. It's not anxiety. So if, if you're looking at the um, clinical opioid withdrawal scale and really the patient doesn't have dilated pupils, they don't have goose flesh, they're not restless, you know, they don't have vomiting or diarrhea and they're just highly, highly anxious, I would say that's not precipitated opiate withdrawal. Um, and so what you have to differentiate it from is just the person actually didn't get enough buprenorphine and they're still in withdrawal. So I would want to know more about the symptoms that she had after she took the four milligrams. And it's important to know because really the treatment for this situation is more buprenorphine. And I would say, if she took the four and she didn't feel good, and then she took, say, 16, she might have felt better because then she might have had her withdrawal uh, treated sufficiently. So um, it's important that clinicians know this and important that patients know this because a lot of patients and a lot of clinicians are now turning away from buprenorphine as a, as a treatment, which is so vitally important. And I think that we're, you know, losing this really, really important life-saving medication. So how often does the real precipitated withdrawal happen? Do we know what the risk is when we're starting buprenorphine? So the best data we have is from a recent prospective cohort study. It was done in the emergency department, but it was done as part of a randomized um, clinical trial. And this was most people who have high potency synthetic opioid exposure, so greater than 75% of them. And they report that less than 1% of the individuals in this study who received initial doses of buprenorphine, eight milligrams or greater, had precipitated withdrawal. So this is clinician, person experienced in being able to determine if this is precipitated withdrawal, um, evaluating patients, and there was a low incidence in this um, study. There were also uh, two retrospective cohort studies that were done across emergency departments, um, all in California, I believe, and they also had a low incidence of precipitated withdrawal. Now, this doesn't mean it doesn't occur. It absolutely does occur. But again, I think it's important that you are able to differentiate what is true precipitated withdrawal from what is my withdrawal has not sufficiently been treated and I need more buprenorphine. And if I get more buprenorphine, I will actually feel better. And that is what I am seeing more of. And that has changed my practice in the sense that I now feel that particularly for folks who have a lot of exposure to high potency synthetic opioids who are in withdrawal need a different starting dose of buprenorphine. The traditional starting dose of two to four milligrams is not going to be sufficient for them. They're going to feel terrible still. They're not going to get the opioid withdrawal treatment that they are seeking. And so we need to have a higher starting dose of buprenorphine for them. And what is your go-to starting dose for a patient who, who you believe has truly experienced, you know, this precipitated opioid withdrawal in the past? What would you recommend? 
Well, it depends on a lot of factors. I don't just, you know, start everybody on a high dose, regardless of who they are and if they're in withdrawal. So your patient does need to be in opioid withdrawal. They need to have some amount of opioid withdrawal. Typically, I'm looking for objective signs of opioid withdrawal. Generally, that is a cow's somewhere in the range of 8 to 12. My current practice, honestly, is I look for at least one sign of objective withdrawal. And I usually try to look for pupillary dilation or goose flush because I find that those are two of the most objective signs that I can see. Um, so once I see those objective signs, persons in withdrawal, they haven't had any opioid exposure for a period of time. Um, doesn't have to be a super extended long period of time, but they, they can't have, you know, just used perhaps. Then I'm generally starting anywhere from 16 to 24 milligrams on my first dose. So one of the questions I have about the, you know, I think that these higher doses of buprenorphine have you know, I've seen it work in my practice. I'm always scared, to be honest, uh, before I do it. But that one of the challenges I've encountered is that if patients have in, have had either true precipitated withdrawal or kind of, you know, worsening or untreated opioid withdrawal and tried a little bit of buprenorphine, a lot of times they don't want to take more because they're worried it's going to make them more sick. So I'm wondering how you go about kind of counseling a patient about why the higher dose is a good idea? And, and also what other treatments might be available to kind of say, hey, if this, if you aren't feeling well, these are the other things we can provide you. So it's definitely important that you're talking to them. And, and I get that same, um, patients tell me the same exact thing. Now, I think it's important to recognize that I'm mostly practiced in the hospital setting. So generally, my patients have had less use of opioids by the time I see them, they've had some period for the most part, not always, some period of time that they haven't um, had any use. So I think that makes my job a little easier in that sense, uh, because I'm not in an outpatient setting. So I talked to them about their experience. What was it? What happened? What dose did they did they take? You know, how proximate to their use of fentanyl um, was their withdrawal symptom? If they're really, really nervous and scared, what I typically say is, okay, you're in the hospital. We are going to treat you with a short-acting opioid for a period of time. I'm going to get you comfortable. You're going to be fine. We're going to do that for 24 to 48 hours. Then we're going to stop that dose at, say, 10 p.m. You're going to sleep through the night. I'm going to see you in the morning. And then we're going to start the higher dose of buprenorphine. I'm using that quite frequently now in our um, in-hospital buprenorphine initiations. In the outpatient setting, obviously, you don't have the benefit of doing that unless you have a reason such as acute pain that you're prescribing a full agonist opioid to your patient. So I think that's where it gets a little trickier. And that's where I think it's important to understand if there are sufficient supports around your patient to do the high dose approach. And so it, they may not have that sufficient support um, to do that in the outpatient setting. And you may need to think of, you know, other ways to do the initiation or potentially think of a different setting for the initiation. But recognize that, you know, the medication didn't fail, they didn't fail. It's just this 
you know, the drug supply is unpredictable and unsafe. And it's really important that we get you on this medicine. And um, some highly motivated patients will do it regardless. You know, they'll, <laughs> I've had some of them fight through some of the withdrawal um, just to be able to get on the medicine. So there's many different ways to do it. I don't want to make it too complicated and seem like it can't be done because I think that is also harmful to patients and harmful to clinicians who want to provide this medication. But I do think that there is a level now of individualization that needs to occur and you need to think of the setting, the patient, you know, the risk factors, their expectations, their environment, their supports, and then individual individualize the initiation process based on those factors. So I think that's really important that we really remember, just as you said, Melissa, we really need to individualize the approach for the patients. And can you just give us some examples briefly about what kind of options you may consider and then make sure folks are aware that they can always reach out, you know, to their addiction consult service or an experts in the field to sort of um, help provide more guidance if needed. Right. So if you do have a patient who unfortunately ends up having uh, precipitated opioid withdrawal, there are treatment options. First of all, to try to avoid it, like we talked about, you could uh, make sure there's a period of time that your patient's not using fentanyl um, or fentanyl analogs. Pre-medicate with adjuvants to help them, such as clonidine, hydroxyzine, sometimes benzodiazepines, to help them get that period of no use before initiation. Um, and we do find that that's increasingly necessary uh, with um, high potency synthetic opioid exposure. If your patient does start to have uh, precipitated withdrawal, however, the approach is really to give more buprenorphine because you've already given it, you can't take it back. So really you need to kind of flood their opioid receptors now with more buprenorphine. So in that situation, say for this patient who took four milligrams of buprenorphine, generally you're going to want to at least give that person somewhere between 16 to 24 milligrams. I have in some cases had to give up to 32 to 40 milligrams of buprenorphine until I'm able to stabilize a patient. And it's uncomfortable and you don't necessarily like to do it, but you can certainly give those higher doses if your patient starts to have precipitate withdrawal. There are some cases where it becomes very, very severe. I have had to um, manage folks in more critical care units when this happens because they can become very, very agitated, very unsafe, very uncomfortable. So this would be, say, the emergency department, um, a step-down unit, or an ICU. And in those cases, we are generally finding that we're having to use um, medications such as ketamine um, at usually 0.3 milligrams per kilogram. Um, you can do that as a you know, over 15 minutes, or you can do um, a drip. Again, if you don't have experience using ketamine, you would generally want to talk to someone who does, obviously. Um, you can also use benzodiazepines. And then we are also using generally full agonist opioids in the IV form. Um, I've generally used hydromorphone in these situations. But 
of all the medicines I've used for precipitated withdrawal, the most effective medicine I have found is ketamine. Um, why it works is a little bit of a mystery, um, but it does seem to stabilize the mu opioid receptor in a way that other opioids don't. I would avoid using methadone. I would avoid giving too many benzodiazepines because I've seen folks become delirious from getting so many benzodiazepines. Um, so I think that's where, if you do have access to that higher level of care and you're able to use ketamine as an option, that is a really safe and effective option. And there are some case reports that describe that. Um, and again, I've seen it work in practice when nothing else would work. And you can certainly give IV hydromorphone or IV fentanyl if needed. And sometimes that can just stabilize folks. They're not really going to get an opioid effect from it. Um, why it works exactly is not totally clear, but it is an option. That was super helpful. Uh so I think just to like kind of go back and summarize a little bit, because we talked a lot about kind of high dose initiations and about kind of opioid withdrawal, but it sounds like fentanyl's kind of changed the game. No one's really sure entirely if it's causing a lot more precipitated opioid withdrawal or maybe a little more buprenorphine precipitated opioid withdrawal, and it was just a lot more people not getting enough buprenorphine. But kind of the way that we think about making bup initiations work for people who use a lot of high potency synthetic opioids is to just give more bup and wait a little bit longer. And so giving doses between 8, 16, 24 milligrams to start and people that have kind of a large amount of high potency synthetic opioid use and trying to wait two to three days, but ideally just until they have like one very obvious objective sign of withdrawal before starting. And then in the hospital, you can kind of one, you can kind of get people through those two to three days by just giving oxycodone and then having them wash out kind of their fentanyl for a couple of days and then doing a kind of more standard initiation. And two, if they have bup precipitated opioid withdrawal, the answer is more bup and in rare cases, ketamine. Yes. But, okay. You mentioned that there are some like other approaches to initiating buprenorphine too, kind of in the fentanyl era. Can you like briefly touch on, on them a little bit too? Sure. Um, yeah, there are definitely situations where you may consider a low dose buprenorphine initiation approach. And that has been described in, in other curbsiders, but essentially that's where you're using those lower doses of buprenorphine, generally in the 0.25 to one milligram starting doses while someone is continuing a full agonist opioid. And then you're slowly building up the dose of the buprenorphine while that uh, full agonist opioid continues. And those approaches have been described lasting one, anywhere from one to, to 10 days. And so lots of different approaches out there. We don't have great evidence on the best approach, but they do work. They're a little like voodoo, but they do work. <laughs> and I've seen them work really, really well for folks, um, particularly in the hospital setting. I would say I think they're harder to manage and monitor in the outpatient setting. And again, could be a reason why you may have to think about the setting of initiation for folks who aren't doing well in the outpatient setting. So certainly in the hospital, they work really well and uh, have been refined um, to work pretty well in that setting. 
the patients who are going through the low-dose buprenorphine approach do not need to have any opioid withdrawal um, during that period of time. Now, you know, related to the low-dose initiations in the outpatient setting, since I work mostly in the outpatient setting in an opioid treatment program, I've found that it's been increasingly challenging to successfully do a low-dose initiation for someone who's actively using a high-potency synthetic opioid. But I have found that people who transition, who first start methadone and then stabilize on methadone, it works very well, uh, really smoothly. We partnered with a pharmacy, actually Sean helped spearhead that initiative um, to partner with a pharmacy that creates uh, blister packs for us. And now it's just, you know, whenever someone wants to or has an indication to switch from methadone to buprenorphine, um, that's our go-to approach and it works very, very well. Yeah. No, I think that's that's amazing. And that's definitely, you know, I think if you are in the outpatient setting and you have access to methadone for the treatment of opioid use disorder, that's definitely a wonderful approach to have. And that's going to keep the patient safe while they're doing it because you don't want your patients to obviously be unsafe or, again, unsuccessful. Because if they're unsuccessful, that means they're not able to be protected against opioid overdose. And, you know, that's why it is so important for us to learn all these newer approaches to support our patients and recognize that, you know, this may work for one patient. That doesn't mean it's going to work for another. And we need to have options for our patients. And that's also been described uh, and patients have asked for options. So um, thankfully, we have more options now and just learning as much as we can about these approaches um, to quickly get our patients into care. And in your opinion, Melissa, which patients may be best for a high-dose beep start? Which uh, folks are you really considering considering using this approach as a first line? If I see someone who's in opioid withdrawal, high-dose beep. (laughs) That uses high-potency synthetic opioids too, right? Yeah, which is most people that I see. But yeah, I mean... My my fellows um, uh, get nervous, and you know they, they we're in the ED, and the person maybe had an overdose the night before, and they got a bunch of naloxone, and they are in terrible withdrawal. And we give that person twenty four milligrams of buprenorphine, they walk out feeling well. And I know it feels a little uncomfortable the first time you do it, but you do it and they're now safe and they feel good and they're going to continue on treatment. You just save their life. So we need to become more comfortable when someone in, is in withdrawal, treat their withdrawal. We know how to do that. Do not use the low doses. It's not going to be sufficient for that person with high potency synthetic opioids. It's not going to sufficiently protect them from overdose. They're not going to continue on it because they don't feel good. So that's the opportunity. That's the opportunity to really quickly within what the five to 10 minutes it takes for the medicine to dissolve in their mouth to change their life. And, and I think you bring up this a clinical situation we didn't talk about too, right? If someone comes in and they get naloxoned or they get some opioid antagonist to reverse an overdose, right? They are in precipitated opioid withdrawal. Like you can give them bup right then, get them feeling 100% better and get them on a medication. And so like, that's another like very important situation where you could use this really quickly too. Right. Or folks who suddenly don't have access to say a prescribed uh, medication. I know it's less common now, but that does, we do see that uh, folks who are 
you know, maybe they were prescribed 500 milligrams of an opioid, full agonist opioid, they come in, they no longer have um, access to that, we can start buprenorphine at a relatively, you know, I probably wouldn't start as high a dose for that person, maybe I would start 12 milligrams for them or 16 milligrams, but that's also um, an indication. But the person has to be in withdrawal. You're not giving high dose buprenorphine to someone who is not in withdrawal. Don't do that. You will make them uncomfortable. Um, So, you know, once you see it, give them the medicine, they will get better. And luckily, she does start this buprenorphine with a high dose approach and feels pretty good. So currently she's on 24 milligrams and she does come back to clinic, but says that she still is having opioid cravings on 24 milligrams. So what range of buprenorphine dosing uh, would you consider for her? Like I think on the FDA approval or insert for buprenorphine, it often recommends a maximum dose of 24 milligrams. Do you ever go over that? Yeah, it's a recommendation. It's not a hard and fast. You can't go above that dose. Um, I would say, first of all, it's good that she's telling you that she's, you know, not feeling well. She's sharing with you again. She trusts you to tell you that she feels like, you know, she's not doing well. I would inquire about that. What's going on in her environment? Tell me more about your craving. How might I be able to better address that? Um, are there other things in your environment that we might want to change? Um, and then certainly going up to 32 milligrams is reasonable. I would say I wouldn't, you know, if she's still not doing well, despite going up to 32 milligrams, I would say that probably at that point, I'm reaching for our longer extended release um, buprenorphine injectables, because I know that I'm going to get a higher concentration of buprenorphine activity at the opiate receptor. Um, And so those are the folks that I think can really benefit from, if you're on 32 milligrams, you're still not doing well, reach for the injectables. And that's where I'm seeing folks um, stabilize out. I do see people who do need additional buprenorphine in the first one to two months of getting the injectable buprenorphine though, particularly if they have high potency synthetic opiate exposure. So do recognize that, you know, it does take some time for the extended release formulations to get to steady state. And we are seeing folks needing that additional buprenorphine during that time. We covered so much. (laughs) Yeah, that was great. What do you guys think? Should we move on to take home points? Let's do it. Uh, Well, I think, first of all, we talked about methadone and we talked about methadone initiation. So um, I'll shout out to uh, colleagues of mine, Susan Calcaterra, Marley Martin, Nora Englander, who wrote a nice um, article um, for SHM, uh, Things We Do For No Reason. I think that was a wonderful article, talks about methadone initiation in the hospital and why is it not used more widely? So utilize it as a treatment. If you don't know, you know, resources in your community, please work with someone to locate them. If you don't have access to methadone treatment, you can still start it in the hospital, stabilize folks like um, Kenny mentioned and, you know, consider um, switching over to buprenorphine at a later time. So that's take home number point, number one. Um, Number two, I would say is, you know, initiation of buprenorphine for folks who've had a lot of high potency synthetic opioid exposure has gotten a little trickier. 
not impossible. It's still a wonderful option. It is still life-saving. It is still can really help your patients. Um, so I think some of the nuances, it's important for folks to become familiar with. We have written about this extensively and a new um, American Society of Addiction Medicine clinical considerations document that I would encourage you to read. Um, I'm partial because I was the lead author, but I think it's really well done um, and goes through um, six key questions that kind of, you know, talks about the various things that you want to take into account along with the current evidence, which, yes, you know, needs to improve, but um, does go through that. So please um, look at that document if you want more information. And individualized care, I think, is, you know, has always been <laughs> what uh, should have been recommended for patients with opioid use disorder because they deserve really good care. And we can provide them really good care, life-saving care um, to change their lives. And so please um, familiarize yourself with that if you need more info. Anything else you want to plug? I want to plug a new website that we just created called safersubstanceuse.org. Uh, many folks on this current podcast contributed to it. Um, it is freely available anywhere. Um, please utilize it as a resource for your patients. And um, I hope that it helps you and helps you talk to your patients about reducing harms related to injection drug use. Um, so check it out. It's a really great, great resource. I mean, I'll say that I've been using it both for my patients, but also for teaching a lot with students, residents, our current, our new batch of fellows who are awesome, who are here now, uh, but it, it's a, it's a really great website. So check it out. We'll, we'll make sure to put it in our show notes. This has been another episode of our Curbsiders miniseries, The Curbsiders Addiction Medicine. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com slash addiction. We are committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. And you can always contact us at curbsidersaddictionmed at gmail.com. A special thanks to Dr. Matt Watto and Dr. Paul Williams for their support on this project, um, as well as to ASAM, the American Society of Addiction Medicine. Learn more about the organization at asam.org. And also a special thanks to our editor for this episode, Kento Sonoda. Um, and we also want to thank our whole team. And we want to mention that the Curbsiders Addiction Medicine is produced and edited by the team at Podbased. And a reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME for all healthcare professionals at curbsidersvcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. Until next time, I'm still Sean Cohen. And I'm Dr. Kenny Morford. I'm Dr. Akira Lenchia. And I'm Dr. Natalie Stahl. Thanks for joining us today and letting us bring you some addiction medicine pearls.